I'm so happy to be back on the airwaves. Thanks for tuning in. This is Very Sherry, host of Pink Noise. Today, I'm talking to Lori Lazar. She runs the Realness Project, which is the nonprofit arm of Authentic Relating International. And we get some raindrops in the background. I hope it's soothing and meditative and you can let the rhythm of the raindrops just dance in the background. Here we go. So authentic relating inside of the correctional system. Yeah. That's what we've been talking about today. And what that's like to be in connection with them. And we were talking about what it feels like to want to fully reveal and model the work. Yeah. And yet in doing so, you had to ignore the guidelines for what it means to be a volunteer inside the jails. Yeah. Would you mind telling me a bit more about that? Yeah. You know, the suggestion is that if they ask you any personal questions at all, that you just divert that back to them and say, we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you. And in our course, that's just not true. You know, we're there to authentically relate And so it's a give and take and it's about revealing and receiving. And so really we are, we are doing that and we're going to do it in a way that, you know, is we have some discernment in that. So we're not going to just share anything and everything. Um, But mostly what I don't share is my address and my last name. Other than that, I'm pretty much an open book and I will share just the same way that I share with people on the street, because that's the thing, Sherry is, we're there because we believe that we're all human beings and we're seeing them as human beings, not as convicts or offenders or, you know, people that there's something wrong with them or something like that. You know, they are just, they're human beings and, you know, they may have done something terrible and Mm. they're there serving time and they're a human being. And that's such a takeaway that they like, it's so energizing, you know, in the room, you just feel the whole room come alive when they're realizing these people have come in and they're not here to like force something on us or like teach us something. We're just there to share what, what we're so jazzed about, which is, you know, these tools and skills that we've been learning that have been enhancing our own lives with our own relationships. And we just want to share it with them and see what they think. And it's so exciting. You know, when we first get in there in the room, the room's all tight and people are, you know, like, what is this? And very skeptical. And a lot of people won't look up at all and they won't have any eye contact. And, and the room feels a little bit divided. Like people are sitting with just the people they feel comfortable with. And there's like maybe some gang situations going on in the room and they're separate from each other and from us. And, and, and from themselves. And from themselves, yes. And we really emphasize the connect to self piece, the whole program. So everything that we do, we are emphasizing, we're gonna start with connecting to ourselves. So we're practicing that the whole time. So I I appreciate you bringing that up. And will you model that a little bit right now? I, I know what a connect to self ritual is having been a practitioner. Um, of the art course, but I'm wondering how many other people are familiar with what a connect to self ritual would go like. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so one of the exercises that we do, we are actually, you know, we'll stand up and we'll stand up in a big circle and then we'll have an inside circle. So we'll have half the people step forward and face the person on the outside. And so people are standing facing each other. And just that alone is in prison, you know, even not in prison, you know, when we do this work on the outside, it's still kind of intimidating when you're standing across from someone and you're just standing there and they're standing there and you're looking into each other's eyes. And so that alone is already a stretch for many people. Um, But then from there, we actually ask them to go ahead and close your eyes and 
start to bring your attention inward and bringing your awareness down into your body. And so, you know, connecting to self is different for everyone. So some people don't feel comfortable closing their eyes and that's fine too. And, but for me, it helps me to close my eyes to connect to myself. So I like to close my eyes and then, you know, and then I'll, I'll experiment with different parts of my body, but I find that I like to bring my attention or my awareness down lower into my body. So maybe down to my feet and feel my feet on the ground. And that might be where people say, oh, that feels, that feels great. I feel connected to myself when I feel my feet on the ground. And, you know, then sometimes I'm more like in the middle, middle of my body where I, I call my hara, um, but it's like basically your belly button, kind of center of your body behind your belly button. And that point, like, I'll say, oh, do I feel connected to myself there? And I'll just rest there and, and with my own awareness and say, gosh, that feels good, you know, today, or it might not feel good today. But so it's like checking in, like, is this where I want to connect to myself right now? And just putting your awareness there. And, or maybe it's in your heart space, in the heart area where you're like, okay, this is where I feel connected. I feel connected to my heart, or I want to feel connected to my heart. What is it like to even attempt to connect with my heart? You know, a lot of people have never thought of that. And here we are in prison with with people, with men in a room, you know, asking them to consider that. Consider what it would be like to connect with your own heart right now. Is that where you want to connect with yourself? And I also think about it in terms of where do I feel more at most at home? In, or can I feel at home in my body? Or can I feel like most like at, as a friend to myself? Where do I feel most friendly with myself inside my own body? And that's connect to self. And we'll just come back to that between each exercise. To, and by the third time, it's like, even by the third time, it's like second nature, where it's like, okay, we're gonna connect to self. And people start to close their eyes and just start to bring their awareness down. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Mm. Find that safe space for, for each of us inside a prison, you know, inside of our own body. And, you know, if that's the only thing they get out of the program, it's, it's gold. Where am I at home in my body? What a wonderful message. And it sounds like you're asking them to bring their attention there. Yes. To that place. And if I were asked to expand the part of me, that has me feel home, then I'm expanding my comfort. I'm expanding my capacity. I'm expanding like my ability to be here. And so you're drawing attention to something specific in their body that's giving them access to show up more in the way that you want to invite them to show up. I love how you explain connect to self. And it's wonderful to feel all of the different ways that you can tap in to better know yourself. But your sentence is one of my favorites. I'd love to carry that with me. Absolutely. And I love what you said, what you said about notice where you're at home inside yourself, where you're most at home. And I love the idea of like, and now expand that, expand that so you can expand your own safety zone and your own place of feeling comfort in your life and in yourself and Oh, that's brilliant. I love that. I want to use that. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was listening to um, a meditation guide. I think I pronounce her last name Blodden, Sarah Blodden, on Insight Timer. And my dad has become a meditator. Wow. Like it's a whole new definition of my father. He's over 260 days of straight meditation. And he told me about this particular guide because she does a piece on self-acceptance that he's finding really helpful. And when I started listening to her, there's one on surrender that really resonated for me. And she does this beautiful guided language around imagine being 10% more comfortable. Like this idea of qualifying it like, it's not a big ask. 
You know, it's like when someone says, what's your favorite dessert? What's your favorite place to travel? What's your favorite thing ever? And, and there's almost this pressure, like, how am I going to prioritize? But this idea of just name something great or name something you love without it being favorite. And in that way, I felt Sarah's invitation in her meditations of like, find 10% more comfort. And I've used that in some of my connect to self guides. And I don't, I've never asked anybody after if how it landed, but I know that it felt nice for me. Like, I don't have to go all the way. I don't have to have all the right answers, but like, what's 10% more? Maybe I could figure that out. Maybe I could have enough self-trust to open up just that little bit more portal. I love that. I love that because it also seems just so attainable. Like, oh yeah, I could do 10 cent more. I'm curious what the impact is on the population of the prisons now that you've delivered, I think you were telling me at least 25 trainings inside of a correctional facility. That's right. And right now this is specific to the state of Colorado, correct? Yes. That's the only place that we've actually delivered the two-day workshop. We also have a workbook now that we're also getting out um, to any prison and jail that's requesting it. So uh, if people have connections to that, they can they can contact us and we will get them workbooks that are a 14-day introduction to authentic relating that is it's designed for people to do just by themselves. So during this time of COVID, a lot of people have been in, the, in their cells and spent a lot of time alone. And when they've had to quarantine, it's usually 14 days. So it's a 14 day guide and it's meant, you know, for people on their own, it's called Finding Ease and Isolation. And that book is being, is now in prisons all over, all over the US and in Canada. Um, but as far as our two day program, we've only done it in Colorado so far. To, and we've delivered it to about 450 inmates, both men and women. And the results, you know, are, are varied, right? You know, it's not for everyone. Nothing is for everyone. And some of the things that we've experienced have just been so phenomenal. There was a gentleman who, at the end of the course, the, the course ended and he looked over at me and he said, you know, I've been a leader in this prison for about 20 years. Lori, I'm a, I'm a lifer and I have a long time to go in here. And I've been a leader of like the seven habits program. He leads that all the time. He does a lot of really positive things. He's a mentor. And he said, and what I noticed though, is that these are the first two days that I have felt like a human being inside of the prison. What was that like to receive? I mean, it's, it's heartwarming, but it's also, you know, horrifying to me, you know, to know that that's the truth. That's the truth of our current system is it is very dehumanizing and it is designed that way. It's designed to be dehumanizing. It's a bunch of metal cages, literally metal cages that we have human beings living in lots and lots of them in the United States, um, you know, under 3 million, but close to 3 million people living behind bars right now. And the healing that happens when people are actually treated like human beings, I think is far greater. We had another gentleman in that course say, this is the first time in this correctional system that I've actually experienced a correction. Like, this feels like I'm on the right track. I'm on a new track. And it's, it, you know, it's amazing, Jerry. And, and the way that they react, they, they interact with each other, I think is so phenomenal. Cause you know, we're there for two days. They go on living together. And, you know, one of the first programs we were in, we were, we didn't realize that we had three shot callers in the room. Shot callers are, are heads of their own games. And I was actually doing one of the exercises with one of the young guys in the room. And he said to me, Laura, you don't understand these two guys over here. They would never normally talk to each other. They would never, they would never. And they were, they were going to about to do an exercise together, like a dyad together. And I was like, wow. Okay. I don't, you know, I don't really know what's going on here, but 
um, he was just so excited and kind of freaked out that that was happening. He, and that young guy, Tyler, wrote us a letter later on. And he said to us, thank you so much for coming. You guys don't realize it, but that room, we had three shot callers in the room. And it was at a time where race relations were really building up into a very heated thing. And they were gonna have this big brawl. And Tyler said, I'm one of the younger guys. I could get called out to be one of the people to participate. And I'm a father and I'm a son and I'm a brother. And, and so what happened was they, after the course was over, those three shot callers went out to the yard and he, what he said is they used the, the skills that we learned in the course, which one of the skills is about creating context, creating a new context. What context do you want to live? You know, what do you want? And they created a new context for like 350 men in that yard. And he was writing to, to say, thank you for, like, you may have saved my life. I'm curious how this has changed you. You know, one of the things it's done is I just, I, you know, prison, I didn't ever have a connection to prisons really before this, Sherry. I didn't, you know, I don't know anyone personally that's ever gone to jail or prison. And I have a sister who's a criminal defense lawyer and she was always involved with the jails and prisons. And so I had that sort of connection. But other than that, it was just for movies and TV shows really seeing in it and sort of this, you know, vision into it. But now that I've spent so much time in there, I realize like how far, far behind bars these people are actually living. Like they're living literally way back behind bars and there's just so much sadness and so much depression and that's existing in there and every time we go in we have people say to us I've been considering committing suicide and now that you guys you know now that I have learned what I've learned here and that you came in and I feel this, you know, uplifting feeling and I've learned these new skills. I feel like I can communicate with people and connect to my family in a new way on the phone or in person when they come visit that, you know, they're, they've, ex, you know, ex, explained that we've, we're saving their lives by going in there. And I just never realized it would be that impactful. You know, there was a, a gentleman that went to his supervisor, the one who brought us in, you know, she's the one that planned the class. He went to her office the day after our program ended. And he said to her, Jackie, I have two daughters. I had two daughters. And while I've been in here, one of them died. And I decided that I couldn't handle this, that my daughter died while I'm in here. And I've been planning on taking my life. He said, I, I sold almost all my stuff. And I um, have been gathering pills and I've been gathering all these pills. And he said, after, after the, they left from authentic relating last night, I went and, and flushed those pills down the toilet because I realized I, I need to live for my other daughter. She needs me. Damn straight she does. these lessons, they are changing lives. And probably, and not just behind bars, this book, Finding Ease in Isolation. And look what's happening around the world with the pandemic. How could that 14-day guidebook help people uh, all over? Right. It's true. And we actually have a version that's just for the general public that um, you can order online as well. It's, it, it's the same book, but it's just designed, you know, the languaging is a little bit different mm. for people that are alone because there's a lot of people alone right now. So I'm so curious about you on this road to doing this work and to end up there hearing these stories, these stories like this, like this gentleman who didn't didn't make the same decision after the course. Like he was preparing to end his life, choosing to live for his daughter. That sounds so hopeful. Like there's, there's magic in being seen. 
Yes. And when you spoke about that introductory exercise of of the men in a circle or the women in a circle, and there's an inside circle looking looking back at the outside circle, and they're exchanging an eye gaze of connection that I'm just guessing based on the things you've said so far, that direct eye contact for the incarcerated population, it, that's, that's gotta be, that's gotta be tough. That's, that's gotta be intense. Eye contact could be a, could be a, an act of aggression to the wrong person because of the context that's been set. So changing the context for what it means to show up with each other in these small spaces. Yeah, you know, Sherry, I love that you're highlighting the eye contact piece. You know, for all of us coming out as babies into this world, you know, some of the first nourishment that we ever received was being held by a caretaker and looking into that person's eyes. And what I've heard is that when babies are born, that's as far as they can actually see is like from a mother's eyes, like that, that distance. And that nourishing connection gets completely lost in prison. So that you're right, the eye contact mostly means aggression. And if someone looks at you, it is not generally gonna be a nourishing experience. It's gonna be a threat and it means trouble's coming. And so they, you know, many people learn to really never look into someone else's eyes. And so having this circle, inside circle, outside circle, where we just, for, you know, 20 minutes are practicing just looking into someone else's eyes, like the healing that is available just from that 20 minutes of having the opportunity to, to just slow down and be in a safe space where you can look into another human being's eyes. And, and, and we could set that context right now in our lives with the people that we spend time with. My friends know that I'm into this work that, but back before COVID, I'm known for three breath hugs. <laughs> <laughs> to just take the three full breaths breathing together because it takes about 20 seconds to get that hit of dopamine and serotonin and yeah yeah and it feels so good and the same thing can happen with that eye gazing yeah. and and yet you need permission so it doesn't get weird it's true and we don't use the word gazing <laughs> like we don't say mm. gaze into the other person's eyes you know we're careful about the languaging because um, it is hard for people. And we, when we have the circle after the eye contact and we talk about it, you know, some of the guys are freaking out. They're like, oh my God, that was so weird. I hated that, you know? Um, and we, we haven't had anyone yet, you know, because some people have said, oh, you can't do that with people in prison. They're traumatized. That's too dangerous. And we haven't had that experience yet. We've really had people... Um, you know, some people just need to laugh the whole time. They're too uncomfortable. And so they just laugh the whole time and, and their laughing is their exit door to that type of intimacy. Uh, and that's okay too. You know, then they're just noticing, noticing that. What prepared you for this? What were you doing before you were a course leader? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I've spent my whole life seeking for my life's calling or something that I could do that I felt like my heart was actually involved in my daily work. That's what I wanted. That was my quest to find something where I felt like my heart was involved in my daily work and something that just called me forth naturally, where I would want to be doing this on my off hours and on my weekends. And, and so it's been a long road for me to find that. I didn't find this work until I was 50 and I'm 53 now. And so what I was doing before then was trying a lot of different things, Sherry. I mean, I, I've been a computer programmer, a stockbroker, a real estate agent. A, um, I got my master's in education. I taught elementary school for a few years. And, and I've worked in HR and been a recruiter in, in corporate world. Um, and I've also owned my own business. I've done a lot of different things. 
And all of those things contributed in some way to leading me to this moment, you know, and, and, and through the entire journey, I've just been very curious about my own psycho-spiritual development and learning and growing relationship skills and that type of thing. In the 90s, when I was just out of college, I did the Landmark Forum and it blew my mind, changed my life. It gave me this whole new orientation to life. And it, I think it actually was instrumental in, in setting me off on this like search for my work. And, and I'd done a lot of things since then, but it wasn't until 2014 when I first discovered Authentic Relating that something else showed up for me that was like that mind blowing, like Landmark was, that life changing. And I got into it at a time where I was into my marriage, four years into my marriage. My husband and I met at 40, when I was 43, he was 45. And then um, this was, uh, you know, four years in and we were having, we, we got, we met and we got married within nine months. So then we were really learning about each other after that. Right. And, and so we were in a rough spot at this point in 2014. And I felt like I loved him, but I didn't, know what to do. I felt sort of boxed in a corner. I wasn't appreciating the things he was doing and the, the behavior that he was example, you know, showing and I didn't know what to do. And authentic relating showed up, thank goodness. And I signed up for a six month program to called, it was called T3 at the Integral Center in Boulder. And I did that course. And right from the beginning, you know, it was the, it was the tenets of this program, this, this two day course that we, lead, that we are bringing in is basically that six months course distilled into two days, like pieces of it distilled into two days. And that course changed my life from the very beginning, the first, you know, practices of welcome everything, assume nothing. I took that home to my husband and I was like, I can't, I was thinking, no way, I can't welcome, I can't welcome these things. I don't want to welcome these things. And I am not going to assume nothing. I already know exactly how he should be behaving and exactly what he should be doing. And I'm not going to assume nothing. And so I was like, okay, but I'm going to give it a shot. So I gave it a go and it changed everything. It just, it opened things up in our relationship in a way that was like, oh, wow, there's space here now. He can like move, I can move and we can navigate differently. And so that was the beginning of my whole life journey, like, like during my journey with authentic relating. And he was so impressed with my changes that he did the next T3 and I assisted in his program. So I was really involved for a full year. And, and then I just used it in my life. I wasn't really involved with the integral center or circling much after that until fast forward when Ryle, who was a dear friend of mine said, Lori, I heard you're already volunteering at the Boulder County jail. I'm going to bring this two-day program that we distilled down from T3. I'm going to bring it into the Boulder County Jail, and I want you to be part of it. And him saying that to me, offering me that opportunity was the, the game changer for me. And, and, and I was already volunteering at the Boulder County Jail. So I was already with the men there and wa watching them respond to that program, which was a very respected program that had been going on for eight years there. But I got to see some of the same men in our two-day workshop that we did and see their marked difference in their response to this work because it's so experiential and it's so powerful right from the beginning and it was so exciting to see that difference and that's when i saw i was like wow this is the work and that's what those men said on the second day of that program they said to us we've done every program inside of the system please bring this this is like nothing else inside the system we need this please bring this everywhere. And how did you know? How did you know this, that this work was for you? Like if you could describe, you said you'd been oh, searching, maybe you'd said something about being a seeker. Yeah. And so you explored a lot of career paths. And I'm just wondering what the, what dots did you connect so that you could go? Yes. Yeah. So this work, or I would say that when I was teaching, what I found, what I loved most about teaching were, was those aha moments where a child would like learn something new and they'd be like, oh my gosh. And I'd see their whole face light up and then they'd run off and do their thing because they learned something and they're going to go do it now. 
And I love that moment. I love that moment, that aha moment of discovery. And I like being involved in that with other people. And I love being around people that are being lit up where there's like light that's coming in and they, their whole being feels more lit up. And I'm, I feel like I'm very in tune to that. And so when I was teaching elementary school, I was clear, like, oh, I love being around these kids. I love these aha moments, but not that into teaching math and science and history. I actually am more turned on by, you know, psycho-spiritual work. And, and so I did some of that with them, you know, like learning how to be a good person in the world. Um, but when this showed up, it sort of brought everything together. Cause I do love like teaching and I love sharing and I love being around people that are, that are lighting themselves up. What does it do for you? It just makes me come alive. It makes my light brighter. It just makes my light brighter. And it makes my heart feel more open and full. And, you know, I, I, I had to do a lot of the work that I did in order to enable me to be able to be in prison and be leading programs. You know, I had to be more grounded in myself. I've done a lot of work to feel more grounded and solid inside myself. I had to do a lot of work with my own, um, like, what would I say, like sexuality or, you know, my way that I want to be seen and wanted by men in the world. And, you know, I've had some trauma in my, in my younger years around um, um, my, with my father coming on to me when I was 13. And I really oriented towards getting attention that way and being sensual and being sexual and, you know, you know, wanting to be attractive and sexy. And so that's been a big part of my identity. And as I've gotten older, I've worked with that. And my, my husband, Peter, has been amazing in helping me work with that. And, and so to come into a much healthier orientation towards my own attractiveness and, and having myself feel enough confidence in myself that I don't need that now from this large audience of people I don't even know to, to be giving me signals that they find me attractive. And that was really important, you know, to be able to go into a prison and sit in a circle of men and, and women and sit in that circle and not be giving off vibes that would be inappropriate and be distracting for everyone. So that's some of the really important work that I've done to be able to do this. I'm fascinated by this awareness that you had of your own need for attention around your sexuality and it sounds like you identified a pattern of certain ways that you might have behaved in order to get your needs met. Is that true? That is true. I'm, and, then, and then you worked with your husband to, to what, identify these patterns and to shift them? Yeah, you know, it was really Peter coming into my life that helped me to turn towards these patterns because there was a lot of shame locked up in there. Like, you know, when, if people would point anything out about that, like, oh, why? I had previous boyfriends that were like, why do you need so much attention from men? You know, and they were so upset that I needed so much attention from men and I would argue for it. And, oh, I don't need that much attention. And what's wrong with it? I'm just, you know, it's, it keeps me alive to be able to flirt a little bit. It doesn't mean anything. I'm not gonna pursue it. What's the big deal? And, so I would argue for that and really put a stake in and not budge at all. And then when Peter showed up in my life and I'm, you know, just really fell in love with him and we were in our marriage really quickly. And he, he was starting to point out some things about the way I was interacting with other men that he was uncomfortable with. And the way that he was able to bring it was more out of curiosity and to say, you know, I want to check this thing out with you. When we were out tonight, this thing happened and I was wondering like, is it just me? Am I just being jealous or am I just, is it my thing? Or was there something going on there for you? And at first I, I would get really defensive and, and deny it. And, but, but then I like he created this space of safety and the way he held it with me it was the first time a man ever held that with me in a way that wasn't just, for me, it felt like, 
implying that I'm bad or wrong or a bad person for needing attention or, um, you know, for looking for that in, in men. And, and I had to evaluate what's important to me. What are my priorities here? What is more important to me? And one of the things I recognized was I do want him to feel safe in our marriage because I'm not really trying to like get with other men. I just want, I was just doing it more for the attention and I want him to feel safe. And so I've learned to adjust the way I'm being in the world. And it was a give and take. And I had to go a little bit, you know, to a place where I felt a little bit suppressed um, and then come back out of that to a place that feels more natural for me and, and works for both of us. It sounds like you were able to simply shift the priority. The priority became wanting your partner to feel safe and connected to you. Yes. And that he was a priority. Yeah. And and it's almost like that need could override a need based on an old narrative. That's true. I've had recent conversations with my partner about uh, the shame that I still carry for the for the little girl, the inner child who was just felt so guilty for being an attention whore. And as an adult, like still having that desire to be to be seen and to take up space. And the question coming back about, well, what are you making wrong about that? And I'm like, well, if I take up space, it's, am I taking it away from someone else? And then my partner said, well, isn't that someone else's responsibility to take the space they need? (laughs) And this just gets back to what the fourth practice of like own your experience, right? right? What is it that you need to be you? Right. And what I'm fascinated about your story is, as I relate to the desire for attention, I've often considered myself to be very flirtatious. And I feel like you're, you've given me something I can chew on. Mm. Why am I flirtatious? What need is it that's getting met? When, when COVID hit and we all got our stay home orders a month later, that was the thing I identified as a need that wasn't getting met was I couldn't, how can I flirt? I'm living with my partner who I madly in love with and I miss flirting. I'm not seeing people. You don't just like randomly, like in the parking lot, coming and going into a store, going to a show. I mean, just chit chat, just being open and having, having that, that, that banter that sometimes had some saucy energy, sometimes neutral energy, but still engaging. And I realized that that's what I was missing. And I started a hump day nooners. It was a Wednesday noon Zoom hour. And I wore lingerie and poured a cocktail and, and I just flirted with whoever showed up. Wow. And that was the context. Wow. I and de- Definitely authentic relating has taught me so much about you're in the driver's seat. What kind of life do you want to envision for yourself? And what experience are you missing right now? Like just, you can just ask for it. So I was like, hey, I'm just going to host an hour of flirting as a nooner on a Wednesday who wants to come play. I was really crazy who showed up. Wow, that's brilliant. I love that. I love the playfulness in that and the power of setting context. You know, that's one of the big tenets that we teach in in the two-day workshop, right? And it's so powerful. I love how much this work can reveal and show us. it's, It's just priceless and it's endless, you know. There's just, it's just such a wealth of, you know, we have these just five practices that are the container of this work. And I always say you can practice these things immediately as soon as you hear them. Welcome everything. You can you can just start immediately going, oh, how can I just be more welcoming of everything right now? And 
you can geek out on that for the rest of your life. You know, I, I'm geeking out on that for the rest of my life to explore what does it mean to welcome everything? What are all the nuances in welcome everything? You know, and so, yeah, it's, it's just priceless. Is there, is there a particular practice that was the hardest for you? I think owning my experience has been the hardest for me. I, when I first got into T3 and we'd be in this big circle in the room uh, and people would be talking and I'd want to share something in the circle about something that I saw in the program or I was seeing about myself and I was afraid to speak because it was so new, this whole idea of owning my experience. I didn't even know what it meant. I, as soon as I would start speaking, someone would be like, oh, you just said like a universal truth, you know, <laughs> meaning I said something like, well, everybody knows that you know, the world is more violent today than it used to be. Like as an example, just as an example, right? No, that's an arguable statement. It's not, not everybody knows that the world's more violent. You could easily argue that it was more violent when people were cutting people's heads off in the street and doing public hangings and things like that, you know? So, so I did realize though, that I was saying things all the time like that, where I was not owning my experience. And, uh, and then on a deeper level, you know, there was owning my experience of like, and really looking and seeing what, what was my childhood actually like? What would it have been like? And consider what would it have been like in my child, in my childhood home to grow up with my parents and with my sisters and, and starting to really look into that and own the way that I was being in the world based on like, oh, I probably got almost no attention in my household. Because my sisters, my two older sisters were very much in the limelight and very outgoing and very much look at me, look at me. And so was my mother. And so then I was like, I, when I showed up, I, I would always say like, yeah, they, we didn't need another opinion in the family. Opinions were all taken. And so learning about those things and really looking at, oh, that's why I, I, I wanted so desperately to be heard and seen because I didn't get probably any of that in my family. What happens as you talk about that? Because I hear you share it, I think some of the things that I've shared about my parents and the way it shaped or formed me. And as I sit with some of the ways in which I've identified those patterns, I wonder what it's like for my parents to hear that. And I'm wondering what that's like for you when you identify, oh, what was that like for me to be in this place where I wanted more attention and they were, you know, my older sisters and my mom needed a lot too. Like, what's it like to admit that kind of stuff out loud? It's interesting because earlier in our call, you know, as I was bringing up my parents, I was thinking, well, well, they won't hear this call, so it's okay, right? You know, some of the stuff I've never shared out loud in a public setting like this because I wanted to protect them mm -hmm. you know, hearing these things. And even though it's my real, it's my truth, you know, and 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 that's tricky, you know. I, I look at that like I don't know if you know the book uh, Untamed by Glennon Doyle. I do. Yeah, and I so respected the way she shares everything in that book. And about her family members and everything that happened. I'm like, wow, she's doing that. And they're all alive. And this has become a world famous book. And wow, that's interesting, you know. And, you know, I have to decide for myself how to honor myself and honor them as I'm doing more things in public like this. And I think, Sherry, you know, it has impacted the way that I've interacted with my parents when I'm with them. You know, as I've learned more about my experience and owned it more, and actually it's made it easier for me to interact with them and hold less like blame on them as I've owned my experience more and more. Mm -hmm. I think I used to really hold them responsible for like, they didn't see me and they didn't realize, like they should have supported me to become like an actress or a teacher at a much younger age because that's really what I was. And instead my mom like encouraged me to like become a computer programmer because she wanted to be a computer programmer and she wanted to be in business. And so I got my business school degree in computer programming. And I spent a lot of my adult life blaming 
her for that. And now that I'm doing more work about really owning my experience, you know, I've, I've been the, the author of my life, of my life story. And I am today. And it feels much more powerful to stand in that position. That's where the power is. You take your power back when you own the experience. Yeah. That's definitely been a lesson I'm learning as well. The very first time I had committed to launching a podcast series was in 2017. It was called The Unraveling. And I was doing a course with Devi Adea. She runs a program called Podcasting on Purpose. And I was so fired up to reveal this this mess that I found myself in as I was approaching midlife, leaving a 22-year relationship, deciding that the dismantling of that wasn't enough. I needed to throw my career away too. And just sitting in that place of not knowing what my life was supposed to look like. And it was so uncomfortable. Mm. And, and in that place, I got to examine a lot of, a lot of parts. And as I decided to do that, people showed up, these amazing people who were just showing up to guide me with wisdom and I don't stories and workshops. And I, I just was saying yes and doing it. And so what part of the storytelling for me was to kind of reveal my journey in a very kind of humble, vulnerable way. Like here, I didn't know stuff, but then here, look at this person who showed up with this wisdom here. Let's hear their wisdom putting in these clips. So I'm telling my dad about this podcasting thing I'm doing and not knowing what podcasting really is says, Oh, it sounds like you're just talking about yourself. Who's going to care? And I was devastated, absolutely crushed. And it, I, it stopped me in my tracks and I never finished. And it took me years to just publish the first five episodes of that series. And I never finished the series. And who knows? I say never. I haven't yet finished it. So I... It took me a while to see what had happened and to connect the dots of the timing. Oh, do you remember? That's when I went home to Victoria and I had that conversation in the car with my dad. And, oh, interesting. That's when I never went back to my podcast again. What I see now is that was a test. Like I was still letting the gremlin voices of you're not enough. You don't have any credentials. Who do you think you are taking up space? Like I still, you know, I still had those boxing gloves on and I was still beating up those gremlins and they were still winning. And that's what that showed me. Right. Right. Like what he said should not have impacted me if I was true north. Right. Right. If I was solid in my intention and my purpose and my work, and I believed it was worthwhile and had meaning, then nothing anyone else could have said, even, even a, a, like a superior power figure like my father, who I adore, it still shouldn't, wouldn't, couldn't. Uh, <laughs> I always never want to say shouldn't. Um, if I had been solid in my conviction. Right. It wouldn't have impacted me the way that it did. And all it did was illuminate where I still had work to do. Mm-hmm. And so now I can look at it as information and treat it like the gift that it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, to me, what's coming up is the fifth practice of our five practices, which is honor self, honor other. And that honor other piece has been such gold. For me to allow other people to have their opinions, to have their view of things. Like your dad saying that to you, that, you know, whatever he said to you that day, like just to, to honor him by allowing him to just have that opinion and have it be okay and not, and then honor yourself by just continuing onward anyway. And that's been such a game changer for me. And it sounds like you got there you're getting there with your dad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't brought it up with him uh, since it happened three years ago. 
But I know I've used other examples from my childhood when their attempts to keep me safe was a version of keep me small so that I wouldn't get hurt, so that I wouldn't risk exposure. And in the moments that I defied them and I did the thing anyway, I proved to myself who I am. And I look back at those moments as the biggest, most impactful teaching moments of my life. Mm. That show me the essence of my true self. Mm. And without having that contrary opinion to tell me what I'm supposed to do and to know that in my core, it didn't feel right, that I'm going to take a bigger risk. And if I fail, I fail, but I'm going to take a bigger risk. A bigger risk than you want me to. A bigger risk than you're comfortable with me taking. Probably because you wouldn't take it for yourself. Maybe because you didn't get the support and love that you should have had growing up. It's all, it's all cyclical. It's all in there. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole lineage. And that's what drives me to show up for, for more youth. Honest to God, Lori, that's when we were talking the other day about how you're bringing this work to jails and I want to bring this to youth, to teen groups. Yes. That's right there, right? Like right there. I felt that I was capable of more and their version of keeping me safe was less. It doesn't make them wrong or bad people. No, they were just trying to protect you. Oh yeah. With so much love in their heart. But if there, was, if there were other teachings that were available, that were in the world, that were through the school system or in some kind of peer group or in girl guides or some other way in which I might interact and, and get this idea of trusting your gut, trusting your inner voice that you always know, yeah. how, do, you know how do we highlight that at a younger age? Uh. Yeah, that's so critically important. That is, you know, a million dollar question, how to highlight that at a younger age. And it's tricky, you know, because people grow up in their own home in, their, in one particular context, for the most part, their parents, their siblings. And, and, and parents have the right to raise their children the way they want to, right? And, and so, so many parents are, you know, just kind of tickled by raising their kids in their own image. And, you know, it's so exciting when you see Junior do something that you used to do or, um, you know, that type of thing. And yet that's, you know, that's probably not the most healthy parenting uh, strategy. Mm. What just showed up for me was another justification for this beautiful vision, this dream that I keep holding on to and coming back to, which is community living. How did we get away from it? It was everything. You've, you've, you've got all the generations living together and, and you've got multiple generations that form your clan or your tribe or your community that you're together for a reason. Maybe you share some same values and you've got people tending to the garden and you've got people raising children and you've got people in the art studio making things beautiful. You've got the engineering minds working on, you know, renewable energy sources for your community. You bring all of this together and now you've got multiple adult influences on each of the children showing different ways, different perspectives. What a wonderful world it would be if more kids were raised with multiple adult mentors. Mm. Just as just as an expanded consciousness and awareness. Right. Seeing my sister and I as just two examples of humans from the same household. And we show it very differently in the world. And just by being around my niece and my nephew, I provide a different way of being in the world, a different way of being an adult, a different way of showing up. And they still choose the path they want, but they get access to like a choice. And 
I think that's it. It's just access to choice, seeing it done differently. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what community living can do. Absolutely. But we've got to get out of isolation. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I think actually this isolation is going to lead to more community living. I think people during this time are taking time to evaluate. A lot of people are to evaluate how do I want to live? And there are people now looking into more communal situations. I was just listening to a podcast about this this week and they were talking about people, you know, reevaluating and saying, how do we live in community and how can we make this happen? And so it's kind of exciting that this isolation time, I believe is going to, to lead to more community living, more creative community living. How do we, how can we do that and make it work so that we're not so isolated? And for now, we've got these communities living behind bars, right? I mean, that is a community. And if, and if they can get more nourishment from each other in feeling at home with themselves, that they can feel more safe, imagine what they would have access to, you know, more personal power, more perhaps education, more willingness to actually rehabilitate Absolutely. The us and them just gets just broken down in, in those two days where the group comes in very much us and them in so many ways. And when they're leaving, they're seeing each other as brothers really as, and a brotherhood gets created. It, it's just, it's so beautiful. And it's, it's beyond the boundaries of the normal gangs that, you know, the po politics as they call it in prison, they talk about all the politics in there. And that means gang activity. And it's just very exciting. I, I, you know, I had one young black man said, you know, why don't we can, we can redefine what it means to be cool in prison. We can redefine that like this group. <laughs> so it's, it is really, it's exciting. And, you know, the studies actually show Sherry that, that, um, as far as recidivism goes, that the top leading um, causes to more recidivism, meaning more crime, more victims being created in this world, is the lack of pro-social skills. And pro-social skills are exactly what we're imparting in these two-day workshops, that it's, you know, skills that can enable people to have healthy relationships with their kids, with their partners, with their bosses, and with the community at large, when they go to a store and how to react and how to interact with people, how to create connection. And because imagine coming out of prison really with any length of time, but a lot of these people have spent many years and then they're getting out. And, you know, one guy said to me, Lori, I'm literally getting out tomorrow. He was getting out the next day after our workshop. He's like, I wasn't going to do this thing because I was so excited about getting out. And that's all I can think about. And I'm so glad I did, because when I looked in your eyes, you're, I realized you're the first woman who I've looked into a woman's eyes in six years besides my wife when she's come to see me. And so this is really helpful as I get out on the street tomorrow. Damn. Well, I'm gonna be putting a link to The Realness Project for anyone listening to this episode who wants to learn more about your program and how they can financially donate to get these 14-day AR books in the hands of more inmates. And gosh, I hope this program can just, just ripple and amplify beyond Colorado. And it sounds like these books are already being used, you said, in correctional systems across the country and in Canada? Yes. And we've gotten feedback. We asked for, for them to you know give us feedback after they do the workshop. And and it's just, you know, it's a, it's a little workbook. It's not going to be changing the world. And yet it's changed their world. You know, they're in there. They're so isolated right now. I, beyond, beyond, beyond. Like a lot of them have been in a cell where they haven't had someone come by, you know, like every three days they'll come by and let them take a shower. And then in the meantime, somebody who you don't even see who has some hazmat suit on, you know, delivers a cold meal to them because of COVID and they're trying to keep them safe in there. And so it's really, really important. This, this reaching in with this workbook is, is life-changing for many people. And they've let us know that by sending us letters and such. Our goal is to raise $25,000 so we can get the workbook into 2,500 
inmates' hands inside prison right now during this really challenging time. So any contribution should be super appreciated to that effort. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here and sharing more of your experience about what it's like as a, as a practitioner and facilitator and leader of this work and the work you're doing behind bars. Bless you. I think it's worth mentioning, after Lori and I hung up, we continued to talk about her work. And she told me that of the 3 million people behind bars today, most of them are going to get out and be living in our neighborhoods. And if you care about the future of your community and these returning citizens, they are fathers and sons and brothers. And what kind of future do we want? I know I'd feel better if these men raising sons and daughters would have a better sense of their own humanity. This work makes a difference. And there's something you can do to help. Check out the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening.